take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. Um, if you, does anybody need a handout? Chris is grabbing them right now. Does anybody need a handout for this morning? Tina does. Katrina does. Chuck. Oh, there's quite a few. I'll stop saying names because eventually I'm going to forget a name, even though I know you. I hate that feeling. Well, I've known someone for years, and I walk up to them, and their name just like runs from my mind. This morning, as we, we're going to cover the whole chapter of Mark. Don't worry, we're not going to be here for an hour um, doing that. At least that's not my intent. But I am hesitant. My wife's laughing at me. I, I have been hesitant with this. Um, this chapter is hard. I've done a little extra reading in studying this week, not because I don't know what it means, because I'm trying to think of the best way to present it. Um, even though this is hard, um, this chapter is very important. Um, what I'm hoping to avoid is by covering the whole chapter, we're going to you know, covering a hard topic that we're not going to swim a mile just for a quarter. Okay, because we're going to have to swim this morning. We're going to have to dig, go in deep and try to um, deal with this topic matter that can be very complex and hard to understand. But I'm hoping you're going to come out with some gold instead of just swimming a mile for a quarter. That's my heart's desire. One thing that I was going to mention before that I forgot, as I mentioned last week, that we're looking at a new sermon series, and I'm calling it The Best Story Ever. We would go through each book of the Bible one Sunday at a time, and a few of the books of the Bible we might split up into two Sundays. So the series would last um, at least 66 Sundays, probably more like 72 to 75. So it would be a longer series. So um, I want to make sure that you guys are looking forward to it. I don't want it to be a drudgery. The value of seeing how each book of the Bible supports the story of Christianity, the story of what God is doing, and uh, bringing all that together is um, a desire of mine. I'm hoping it will be a blessing to you. Um, I got some feedback last Sunday. Um, please, if you have some feedback, if you have a hesitation, just please tell me. Um, right now, the the positives, I've all got all positive and no negative, but if you have some concerns, talk to me, because it is a commitment to be in a series that long. I put you through um, Philippians and 59 Sundays, and that was kind of long for some of, you, some of you, and so whenever I'm going to be in a longer series, I, I want to just talk with you about it. So there you go. I had to get that in there, because we're coming up to where I would be starting that here in a few Sundays. So, as I told you, I was hesitant. This is the challenge here. Hoping you end up with some gold this morning, <coughs> as we have to wade through a lot. What does the end of the age have to do with you today? And as it is in many passages, I wouldn't say most, but many passages, Scripture is accomplishing a lot of things at once. And that's especially true here in Mark chapter 13. I view it as 
um, there was a direct application to the disciples whom Jesus was talking to. There is also an indirect application to us as a church today. My view on this passage is um, the Gospels, um, the only gospel that mentions and references the church, which had not arrived yet. The church did not arrive till Acts chapter 2. So in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the only gospel where the church is referenced, although it was not there yet, had not arrived yet, was in the Gospel of Matthew. And so Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18 references the church. Um, But that was something that was still yet future and did not arrive until Acts chapter 2. And so what Jesus is talking about here in Mark chapter 13 is not making a primary application of the church. The church was not something that the disciples even understood. But what makes it complicated is that the church does have a role in end times. But what Mark chapter 13 is referring to does not directly apply to the church. Because the church will have been raptured by the point that what is happening and being referred to in Mark chapter 13. The church will have been raptured by that point. So there was a direct application to the, to the disciples at that time. There, was, uh, there is an indirect application to the church today. And I believe the most direct application will be for the Jews during the tribulation. So the Jews during the tribulation who are followers of Christ and know their scriptures, Mark chapter 13, called the Olivet Discourse by many, will come alive to them and be very vivid to them. And it will directly apply to them because they will be living those times. So I wanted to talk I referenced a lot quickly there. I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about, this is your first point on your handout, the events of end times. The events of end times. Last week I mentioned what it was like for me to go to college as a freshman And all these people and all these priorities were being thrown at me. And it was a Christian college. And so on top of that, there was just a whole other layer of things that were being thrown at me and trying to sort it all out. And then I think today of um, the news. Forty years ago, 45 years ago, there was one major news outlet, maybe maybe an alternate here and there, maybe the newspaper. But today... We have dozens and dozens of news outlets on TV, on the Internet, on blogs, podcasts. There's just a ton of information out there. And then you add to that people with their cell phones and saying things on Facebook. And that adds a whole other layer of trying to figure things out. And so we're trying to make sense of events with all this information coming from all different directions. And in a way, that's the way I feel the way it is when we're trying to make sense of lots of things, lots of priorities, lots of events. I feel that is the way it is for us 
when it comes to our study of the scriptures and end times, the end of the age. It can feel, depending on how many perspectives you're familiar with and how many people in your life have different perspectives, it can feel like this huge mix of confusion and opinion. My hope is that even with all this discussion, disagreement, and complexity, that we do not lose sight of the big ideas of Scripture. There are truths that every true Christian, there are fundamentals that every true Christian must agree to for them to keep the faith. And the primary one is, when we're talking about end times, is that Jesus will return. Jesus will return. There will be a second coming. There was a first coming of Christ that happened when he was murdered on a cross. But there will be a yet future second coming of Jesus Christ. And part of the challenge for folks at the first coming is that they looked at their Old Testaments, which was the only Bible that they had, as they looked at their Old Testaments, the Old Testament did not tell them there will be a first coming of Christ and there will be a second coming of Christ. The picture is usually put together an all one picture. And some people who teach prophecy, they talk about this. As you look at a landscape of mountains, it all looks like they're all smashed together. But Bible prophecy is like those mountains, although they look all together in a picture. If you were to hike through those mountains, you realize that some mountains are behind the others, and all you could see was just the peaks, and everything was just mashed together. And so that's the way it is for the prophecy of Jesus' coming in the Old Testament. It looked like one coming. And it looked like the suffering Jesus and the victorious Jesus was going to all happen in one coming. But in fact... There was a suffering Jesus at the first coming and there was a victorious Jesus at the second coming. And so that is a fundamental of the faith. No matter what denomination, no matter what subset of Christianity, all true Christians believe that Jesus is coming back. And along with that, there is paired the future resurrection. That is also a fundamental that that Christians will be bodily resurrected at the coming of Christ, second coming of Christ. And in our case, for the church, we do believe in the rapture and that there is a installment, the rapture of the church, and that is when the bodily resurrection happens for the church. But that's getting a little ahead of myself. But what is important for us to understand, to look forward to, to prioritize on all the complexity, all the charts, all the opinions, is that all of us agree on one thing. Jesus is coming back and we will be bodily resurrected. Jesus at the first coming, when he was resurrected from the grave, he was the first fruits of what will happen to us at the return of Christ. So, multiple components to the return of Christ. And I'm just going to tell you what this church believes and has historically believed since the beginning. And that's what we're going to just, that's the grid I'm going to give you. If you've been taught something different, if you want to come and talk, um, the thing that we must agree on is the return of Christ and our future resurrection. So the components are the rapture, the catching up of believers into the clouds before the beginning of the tribulation.
And so Jesus will not set his feet on earth at that moment. The passages that teach the rapture teach us meeting Jesus in the air and the clouds. The passages that teach the second coming of Jesus after the tribulation teach that Jesus sets his feet on the ground and he comes and he conquers. He is the victorious Jesus. So the rapture, then the seven-year tribulation, the second coming of Jesus Christ when he puts his feet on earth, the millennial reign, the 1,000-year reign of Jesus on this earth, and then the eternal state, eternal bliss, the new creation that Revelation chapter 20 and 21 talk about. There can be a lot of other details, but I wanted to give you the main components. So what we are dealing with this morning with Mark chapter 13 happens during the tribulation. There are some references that seem to apply to other times. We'll get to that. But as we deal with these passages about the end of the age, no one scripture passage lays all of this out in one place. In most of the scripture passages, they don't give you this crystal clear picture even of the events that they're describing. Sometimes they give a partial picture and sometimes the wording and the illustration they use doesn't quite give us confidence exactly what's going to happen. And so many of us, as we have studied the scriptures, we begin to synthesize. And this is the way it is for any doctrine. There's no one uh, passage of scripture that gives you everything about the major doctrines of scripture. You have to synthesize. Because the goal of those passages is not just to give you a textbook overview. The goal of those passages is to shape your character or to shape your heart in some way in tandem with the doctrine that they teach. And so that is the way it is within times and that's the way it is with this passage. This passage gives us a lot of details about events, but there is an overriding theme. And we're going to get to this in a few minutes. Of This passage is shaping our attitude and shaping our heart toward what to do in light of the future events that are coming. Another thing that's a reality that I don't have time to spend time to spend on this morning is that this passage, a lot of people feel like this passage at least um, talks about something that happened, was going to happen 20 or 30 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. And then it also, like many passages do, mostly talks about something that's yet future in the tribulation. I hope I haven't put you to sleep. But I have to lay this groundwork. This this is so hard to talk about the end of the age. It's just there's so much to talk about. But I'm hoping that what you're getting so far is that um, there are some highlights that we must hang our hearts on. And now we're going to start to move in to those things. So we need to read Mark chapter 13. It's, it's uh, 37 verses, but we just need to read it. And then I'm going to try to draw some conclusions. So with me in Mark chapter 13, verse 1. <coughs> and as 
Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. I have to press pause here. The temple, Herod's temple, was even greater. because We call it Herod's temple because he was the ruler there. He was building this temple for the Jews. And it was greater and more glorious than Solomon's temple. It was bigger. It was more impressive. And it wasn't even done at this point. It was going to go on for another 20 years of building. It wasn't even fully accomplished. So the Jews were enamored with this. I mean, they knew this was greater than even Solomon's temple. And so, I mean, this was like the big deal for the Jews was this temple. Verse 2, And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Boom. That is a gut punch to those folks. You can take whatever we think is great here in America and everything that we're proud of, and boom, it's gone. And here's our Lord Jesus telling us that. that that's hard take. And what he's referring to here, most people would say, is what happened in A.D. 70. So it's in our past, but it was in their future when Jerusalem was raised to the ground, including the temple. So it was finished just about five to ten years before it was just raised to the ground. And to give you an idea of the um, amazing, the wonder, the, the shock of this temple, the, the stones were probably, you know, some of them were as almost long as this room. They were huge, huge stones, mammoth. Verse 3, And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. So they were leaving Jerusalem and they would have gone through what was called the Kidron Valley. And then they would have climbed this mountain. And if you turn your hand out over, there's a couple of pictures. I want you to visualize this. Here's this temple that they love. And this, this valley is this, this little slender valley and Jerusalem is rising up on one side at a fairly steep rate and the Mount of Olives is rising up on a steep rate on the other side. And when Jesus comes at his second coming, he's going to set his foot down on the Mount of Olives and then he, boom, he is going to cross that Kidron Valley. He is going to go into Jerusalem and he is going to conquer. So the Mount of Olives has a huge significance. But... It's just like this really steep dip. And then, you know, rising up is the Mount of Olives on one side. Rising up on the other side is is Jerusalem. And there is the temple right there opposite them. So it's like this really steep valley in between them. And they can look over and they can see this temple that they're so impressed with. And um, the uh, Mount of Olives rises about three or 400 feet higher than Jerusalem. And so I don't know what part they were, were they just directly parallel? They could just look over directly into the temple. Were they a little bit higher, just looking down a little bit at the temple? But there they are. They're having this discussion and they're looking right at this temple across this narrow valley. So verse three is as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, When will these things be? And what they're talking about when they say these things, Jesus had just said as they were leaving Jerusalem that this temple was going to be destroyed. So they want to know, when is this going to happen? 
When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See (coughs) that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. I am the Messiah. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pangs. The birth pangs come, you know that the that eventually you're going to have the baby. So he's saying when you see these things, it's just going to be the beginning of the, the preview of or the precursor to when the baby's actually going to come. Verse 9, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand <coughs> before governors and kings for my sake <coughs> to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And they will bring you to trial and deliver you over. Do not be anxious before him what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. How We can use that during this age of the church. There is a truth to that. And But I just want to say the primary application is in that future time during the tribulation. But it is true for us today. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit, and he does give us wisdom in the moment when we're under persecution. Verse 12, and brother would deliver brother to death. Don't lose sight of that. Your sibling would deliver you over to be murdered for your faith. Serious. These types of times when there's a conflict between evil, between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, is at a peak, a fever pitch. One of the characteristics will be that um, even family members will go and turn against one another and deliver each other up to die. Verse 13 And you will be hated by all. For my name's sake. That is the reality in our world today, but there are definitely pockets in our world, like our country, where that is much, much less so, even if it's on the rise. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 14 But when you see the abomination, abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, and Mark inserts a little comment, he says, Let the reader understand, then. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Here is verse 14. This is a technical reference to something that will happen in the tribulation. What is confusing is that there have been similar events in the past that have happened. And you will see this throughout your Bibles as you read them. There's many times when similar events happen, but throughout the scriptures there can be a heightening and heightening and heightening of things to where the actual thing happens. And it becomes greater and greater, more and more intense until the actual ultimate event happens. 
So here, there will be an abomination of desolation, something that happens in the temple. There will be a temple yet future during the tribulation. And there's not a temple now, like, like what we're talking about here. And in that temple, the Holy of Holies will be um, violated. And so um, the, the, these instructions here are for those Jews during the tribulation. The church will be raptured out. The Jews during the tribulation, when they see this happen, what are they supposed to do about it? What should they do? And Mark, by the Holy Spirit, says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. During the tribulation, when this event happens, Mark is saying, You folks, run. Run. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. I can imagine those Jews alive in tribulation who believe in Christ will will read this passage. And I can imagine part of their prayer sheet, part of their prayer list is, Lord, please don't let this happen in winter. Because they know the scriptures and they believe them to be true. And so part of their prayer list is, Lord, please don't let this happen during winter. Verse 19. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now. (coughs) And never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short (coughs) the days, no human being (coughs) would be saved. But for the sake of the elect or God's people... Those he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. So this is applying especially to that time when they're fleeing. There will be people in their midst saying, hey, Jesus is here. He's warning them ahead of time, do not believe it. And I suspect that they will really be wanting to say, that really is Jesus That is the Christ because they're in crisis. They're running for their lives. And so they're going to be apt to want to believe that. They say, oh, Jesus is here. He's rescuing us. No, the rescue is not going to happen during this time. And he's warning them. Four, verse 22, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs. So impressive signs as if they are the Christ. And wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Verse 23, beyond guard. I have told you all these things before him. But in those days that after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. Here is the amazing thing that we're looking forward to, this second coming of Jesus when he's going to set his foot down on the Mount of Olives. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give his light and the stars will be falling from heaven. The powers in the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Yes, he'll be in the clouds, but with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. He's going to gather them all together. He's going to establish his earthly kingdom. Verse 28. Now, marked by the Holy Spirit, is turning to give us some lessons on what he just said was going to happen. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So also, 
When you see these (laughs) things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. (coughs) Heaven and earth, and here's a lesson for us, especially today. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Verse 32, concerning that day or hour, there's another lesson for us. It's a lesson of imminency. We have a lesson of intimacy as we're waiting for the, uh, the, re- the rapture. The church is waiting for the rapture. These folks have a lesson in imminency um, as they await the second coming of Christ. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I will say to all, stay awake. When Jesus returns to rapture his church, what will you be doing if you're alive? Stay awake, stay vigilant, and be ready. And have a heart of service and a heart of humility before him. In the same way, be prepared for these folks when they're waiting the second coming of Christ during the tribulation. Stay awake, be vigilant, do right, and be ready for your master to return. All that was under the events of end times. Now, I'm hoping we're going to start to get in the part where you're going to get a little bit of gold, okay? So the next point on your handout is the attitude toward end times. The attitude toward end times. This passage is most, if not all, I can't say because I haven't scientifically gone through all the passages, but most, if not all, passages have some sort of purpose beyond just giving you details about future events. And this passage is chalked full of phrases telling us how to shape our attitude toward these events. And although this primarily applies to the Jews during the tribulation, uh, these admonitions about a proper attitude apply to us today as well. So I went through and highlighted the commands um, on my phone that um, in this passage. And so I want to go through those and they shape our attitude. And I think this will be a help to us. So I have in verse 5, Jesus says, See that no one leads you astray. Do you believe that you are in danger of being deceived? Jesus gives this command to his disciples who had been with him. We are in danger of being deceived. It's a possibility. 
verse 7, at, in the middle of it, it says, Do not be alarmed. Have you been alarmed with what's going on in our world today? And Jesus' command here as he's talking about all the turmoil and chaos that's going to happen, he says, do not be alarmed, this must take place. Verse 9, first phrase, it says, be on your guard. Christian, as you live your Christian life, have you um, become distracted? And failed to be on your guard? Have you failed to remember that you can be deceived and that you can be damaged by this world system that the devil is energizing around you? The command is to be on your guard. Verse 11, in the middle, it says, Do not be anxious. Beforehand, what you are to say. I think for many of us in America, because we know what we could lose, there can be a lot of anxiety because we're used to freedom, comforts, and yet whenever we have to face up to something or whether we might lose a free, uh, freedom or we... Um, we might be in a very dangerous situation. I've read the biographies of Christians who have been in very perilous situations and how they described that there was a peace that came into their heart and a wisdom and that God really did give them the words to say. And so here it is for us, is that whenever we see feel anxiety building inside of us, understand that we have the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit in us and will give us wisdom and will give us words to say. Verse 14, at the end of the verse, last phrase. Um, it, this, The commands in this paragraph, I still want to draw your attention to them, but they do directly apply to the Jews in the tribulation. It says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. There are times in the prophetic calendar when there is direct application And this is one of them. Run here. Verse 18. Pray that it may not happen in winter. Again, this is applying directly to those who are in the tribulation. Verse 23. um, This can be a universal application. Be on your guard. He's already said that. He's saying it again. Be on your guard. Moving down to the lesson of the fig tree. Jesus gives the command there. Learn its lesson. Are you listening? And are you learning? Verse 33, again, be on guard. Keep awake. Verse 35, therefore, stay awake. Verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So we just went through and looked at all these admonitions and how they shape our attitude And then the overall lesson of the fig tree is that that God has given us some key hinge points, some some, uh, previews of what's going to happen. Are we paying attention and are we taking it to heart? And then the lesson of imminency. I can't say that word very well. So I think you know what I mean. There's imminency. The next thing that could happen is Jesus is going to come back. And so are we preparing ourselves? Are we living our lives in the fact that 
We should be alert and ready in serving our Lord. Have humble hearts. Jesus could come at any moment. Will he find us still? Will we find us serving him? Or will he find us in a moment of sin or rebellion or a loss of focus? It will be embarrassing. We spend a lot of time as we're trying to train up our kids in a way that would honor the Lord. We spend a lot of time working on attitude. Deal with the eye rolls or the direct, you know, disobedience um, or the the way and the attitude they do obey. We spend a lot of time on that in our home. And I suspect any other Christian family will be doing the same thing. <clears throat> Hopefully, by the time our children become adults, they can self-correct their attitude through the training that they've received and through their own walk with the Lord. Adults have attitude problems, too. But through our time with the Lord, through the training that we received as a child, through godly friends, the list goes on, can help us correct our attitudes. Scriptures being a primary way. Scriptures go to the heart and they challenge our attitude. And this passage, although it's chalked full of future events, it's also chalked full of attitude attitude adjustments. I about spit my cough drop all over the place. <clears throat> so, finally, and I'm going to this part's going to be quicker. The accomplishment of end times. So you deal with the complexity of the events and then you deal with the attitude. The attitude is where you get some of the gold and you get some more gold from considering the accomplishment of end times. In our lives, we ask ourselves or sometimes we ask others, why am I doing this? Why are you doing this? Why are you putting yourself through this? What are you trying to accomplish? Or what are your goals? What are you trying to do in life? And as I look at just the end times, there's a lot of things that are glorious, but there's a lot of blood and gore and violence. And why do the end times have all these awful events? I don't really get excited about all these terrible things happening. I remember as a child not understanding others who didn't want to watch movies that had all the blood and gore and violence. I didn't get that to me. I was like, oh, this is great, you know. But the last several years of my adult life, I have gotten the point to where, that, you know, I don't, those, those movies are dark. You know, there's nothing necessarily wrong with a Christian watching them, but they're kind of dark and heavy or, or, um, it's just way too emotional. I don't want to put myself through that. And I've, I've gotten that point in my life. As I look at the end times, why all this awfulness? What is the point? What's being accomplished? So I want to offer just a few things to help us get some of the gold here as we've tried to cover the, these events. The first thing is, is that as, as it breaks our hearts today, and as we read the history books, disgust us of what has happened in the past. One of the things that's going to be accomplished here, the future or the end of the age, is that evil will be dealt with 
once and for all. Genesis 3, evil was introduced to this world. And there was a prophecy given in Genesis 3, verse 15, about how through Jesus the serpent's head will be crushed. And so, at end times, we see finally, once and for all, the serpent's head is crushed. Evil is dealt with. And all the complexity of the nations of this world, and all the evil that is done through the nations of this world, the nations of the... You think of the world wars that we had, and still evil was not dealt with? You get a little exasperated. We think of all the loss of life through those two world wars, and it still didn't fix it. When Jesus comes, he's going to fix it. And he's going to deal with the nations of this world. He is going to deal with evil. And yes, there will be a final bloody once-for-all war when Jesus returns at his second coming. But evil will be dealt with once and for all. Another thing is the beauty of the scriptures and God's people, God's chosen people, the Jewish people, the Israelite people, you know, the Messiah came through them. But they're at a point in the age of the church where, as you read in Romans, they are not, they've been cut off. But they will be restored once again. And these, the end of the age, the Israelite people, the Jewish people, will be restored once for all. And then three, people, creation, will be redeemed. And there's a beauty of brokenness moving. And this is, happens in the scriptures as a theme of it. I, and if, if I could preach for hours, I would preach on the theme of moving from brokenness to wholeness. And I would just go through the whole scriptures and just deal with that theme. But I won't do that. However, there is the beauty in the scriptures of God and his power and his wisdom, his plan of redemption. There is a theological phrase called redemption history and how God takes a broken, awful creation people and moves them through his son Jesus and his blood on the cross to a place of wholeness. And the end of the age brings that to culmination and ultimately it's all redeemed. It's all brought to restora- restoration and wholeness. Wonderful. We, we love watching the movies, where it's those feel-good movies where someone's broken and they're down and out and they move through the hard times and then they go to, hey, they have conquered, they have won, they have been brought to wholeness again in their lives. They've overcome whatever it was. And so it is that this story of redemption The story of Christianity is the ultimate feel-good movie where you move from ultimate brokenness to ultimate wholeness. And then, as Titus chapter 2 talks about verses 13 and 14, we have that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope this morning you got a little bit of gold. I know we had to swim a lot. We had to swim deep. And swim through a lot, but I hope you got a little bit of gold as we made our way through Mark chapter 13. I will admit it was a challenge for me. Take a few minutes and respond to the Lord.